Rachel Needle from Talking With Tech. And I'm Chris Bouguet from Talking With Tech. We have a podcast dedicated to augmentative and alternative communication, all things related to helping kids with complex communication needs. If you have a passion for helping people with language disabilities, this is the show for you. Each episode features an interview or a roundtable discussion on a topic related to augmentative communication and helping people with language disabilities. And we're really passionate about giving practical strategies to clinicians working in the field who are working with children or adults, anything related to AAC. So you can look us up on iTunes or you can find us on Facebook. We've got a group over there or check out our website at bit.ly slash TWT podcast. Please join our community of professionals that are working to ensure that everyone can say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. The views and opinions expressed during this show do not necessarily reflect like the, the policy or position of any affiliated workplace or employer. The views and opinions of the show do not constitute recommendations for therapy. Please, Please contact, contact a licensed SLP for individual consult on your situation. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's transmitting a thought from one person to another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. The back and forth between two people. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas or thoughts or needs. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we'd be lost. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, episode number 119. We are proud members of the Exceptional Podcast Network. I'm Matt Hot, normally joined by Michelle Wintering and Michael McLeod, but Michelle is driving somewhere to the middle of Kansas, and Michael is taking care of things over in Philadelphia. So I am excited to introduce the host of the SLP Uncensored podcast, Leanne Porter. Leanne, welcome to Speech Science. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, so right off the bat, it's the Speech Uncensored podcast. What did I say? The SLP Uncensored oh, podcast. I've already goofed it up. I am so sorry. It's the Speech Uncensored <laughs> right. podcast. I think I get it confused with everything else happening in the world right now. So yeah, no, I, I apologize. The link, cool. <laughs> the link below will be correct when it gets up there. So the Speech Uncensored podcast, Leanne, welcome to our show. Today on the show, we are talking about the importance of learning how to cancel or counsel with your patients. We're also going to be talking about what IDEA and which states are meeting the minimum of IDEA. And also, we're going to be talking about feeding therapy. But first, we want to hear from you like we always do. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com or email speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on the discords, discord.speechsciencepodcast.com or hashtag it up, SSPod. Phone calls and text messages are always welcome, 614-681-1798. So Leanne, the way we start our show off every week, we check in to see what we've been doing, anything exciting in the therapy land. So you are the guest on the show. So please start us off. What have you been doing this week that is super fun in therapy? Super fun in therapy. Or unique, Ooh. interesting, terrible, any of the above. <laughs> Gosh, way to put a girl on the spot. I wish like right, no I prep work. Cute things <laughs> to talk about. Um, I well, today I did two evaluations. 
And Ooh. one of them was with a patient that I saw like three years ago. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I was like, oh, I know you. You know me. Okay. Like, let's roll. Um, the other one was with a, a new, new to me patient um, who actually did not need my services. And Ooh, that's even better. Yeah, I was super stoked, mostly for him, because I was like, <laughs> yay, you. <laughs> so fill everyone in at home. What setting are you currently working in? I work in outpatient. So I see adults um, for a hospital system. And then because it's part of the hospital, I will, if my caseload gets really light, I'll go upstairs and work with acute patients or float over to our inpatient rehab unit and work there. So Very kind cool. of like the best of all the worlds, I think. Very cool. Uh, for me, this past week in therapy, my caseload in the home health setting or home home health setting is continuously going up, which means my summers are less busy with free time and more busy with with patients. So that's kind of all I've been doing in therapy. Nothing super exciting. Ooh, I got like, to use oh. the, I got to use the click it again, so that was cool. The, the I call it the click it is the cognitive linguistic quick test. Oh, yay. I'm so yeah. glad you have a fun acronym for the CLQT. Like I just say all the letters. So I don't know if this was an Ohio University thing, but for some reason we called all the tests by their like acronyms and we just said them instead of spelling mm. them. Mm. So the Goldman Fristo became the GIFTA. Nice. So then the, the click it is the cognitive linguistic quick test, the RIPA, which is the Ross information. So like Did I just say... The, the RIPA, yeah. Yes, finally, I have met another SLP who calls it the RIPA. Everyone else says RIPA, and I'm like, why would you no, do that? There's no, no two eyes, it's one. Thank you. Well, I just think RIPA is more fun. Right, I'm with you. So <laughs> let us know what you are doing at home. We always start to show off as well with our SS Pod due process and SS Pod shout outs. The SS Pod due process is your opportunity to send something to the court of uh, public opinion where we will decide or debate something you bring up to us. So this week, no new SS Pod due processes. So that's either really good or everyone's waiting until we go back to schools. <laughs> on, on the flip side, we do have an SS Pod shout out. Uh, this is our opportunity to recognize somebody that is doing something super awesome in the, the fields of speech and language or audiology. And this is Dr. Anthony, uh, I'm gonna mispronounce the name, Kotsoftas. Uh, he's an associate professor uh, at, where was he? I missed it. At the School of Health and Medical Sciences at Seton Hall University. He received a 1.4 million federal, or 1.4 million dollar federal grant to develop a new writing intervention. So way to go, uh, Dr. Anthony. I'm going to call you Dr. Anthony. So that is our SS yeah. Pod shout out. If you want to know how to write a grant that gets funding, call him. <laughs> right. Well, so <laughs> I'm reading about this. It's the $1.4 million in grant funding from the U.S. Department of Education Institute of Education Sciences National Center for Special Education Research. And cool. it's improving writing in fourth and fifth grade students with uh, LLD. Oh, good. I'm glad you clarified because, of course, mm -hmm. working with adults, my mind went to like, oh, is this for aphasia therapy? Oh, no, no. This is for kids. This is for the stuff that I'm doing, language-based learning disability interventions. So... So sweet. If you have somebody you know that is doing something awesome that you need to give a shout out to, hashtag it up, SSPod shout out. So Leanne, we are going to jump right into the first article. First That's article, uh, this is coming from Total Food Service. It's an independent feeding tray. Uh, this was created by Ina Herman. She's an SLP uh, in New York State. 
But I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity to talk about some of the cool gizmos and gadgets we use in feeding therapy. And my son is creeping around in the background. Uh, super adorable. Isn't he? He's, he yeah. is until he's yours. But <laughs> True story. <laughs> But no, this independent feeding tray, uh, it allows somebody that has single or single side use of their of one arm to be able to help feed themselves. I know you said you work in a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. I've not used a whole lot of feeding uh, therapy tools. I use a lot of uh, the bowls that are divided up and the trays mm -hmm. that are divided up, but mm -hmm. not too much more other than that. Have you used a lot? I wouldn't say I've used a lot because when it gets into adaptive equipment, that's more like OT's realm that they do because they're about the, you know, the fine motor and the upper extremity use of, you know, holding mm -hmm. a fork or bringing the food up to the face and scooping it and things like that. So it's really, we, we just work once it gets to the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> From the teeth so, to the gullet. That's what I've been told before. That's right. So, you know, I've seen them used um, like a plate guard, something mm -hmm. that clips onto a plate so that a person can, kind of rake across the tray and it has Ooh. a wall to, to scoop the food onto your spoon or your fork. Um, I've seen those. So the idea behind this tray is that in one corner, the right corner or the left corner, there's like this raised bowl that has tongs or something on the inside. So you can drop a container into it, like a magic cup ice cream container yeah. or a pudding container and it will hold it. So the person who can only use their right hand or their left hand will be able to scoop out their food without anyone needing to grab it. See, I like that because when I, I, I do PRN in, a, in some nursing homes and mostly I do the home health care and post-stroke, a lot of my, my patients are always trying to get back to independent living. Mm -hmm. So I love this. And I just dropped something in the chat for you to click on. Have you ever seen this OB robot? Hold on, you're gonna hear all the clicking because my computer's really loud. Um, Ob robot. Ooh. Yeah. So make this in Japan. This looks like something Japan would come I up think with. So it is called the website is meetobi.com, <gasps> and right, what it is is that it is a tray, or it's like a circular tray that rotates, and it's a robotic arm that will go down to the tray, and it is all controlled by switches. Wow. So the idea is that you regain that independence where the person that needs to use it can hit the switch, rotate which food item they're going to eat out of the four or six circle trays on it, mm -hmm. hit the other button, robot scoops it, brings it to their mouth. That's fallen. Right. I love this thing. Yeah. It's also like $14,000. I was about to say, is it one million dollars? <laughs> like it does not look like it's going to be cheap. But they said, I, I haven't worked on it recently, but they did say that it is now Medicaid approval or approved. So really? What about Medicare? Or Medicare. And that's what it is. It's I guess a medical if it's approved for one, management. it should yeah. be fine for the other one, but don't quote me. Yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to get my OTs to record, to like order this for some of our students. And they're like, I don't think I can do that. And I was like, oh, you can do it. Because if not, I will try to see if I can get some version of speech therapy out of this thing. Yeah, that's balling. Yeah, I'm like mad in favor of anything that increases uh, patient agency and independence and a, like a, a, a less reliance on people in their mm -hmm. environment. I mean, that's what 
most of us want <laughs> as individuals. I was going to say, like, I'm a big fan, like, of, of this robot. I've been trying to get my patients to buy more of that xanthium gum mixture. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't know why I've had a string of patients that are, like, want to drink pop and beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when we just use the normal thicket, it just doesn't doesn't taste right for them. It flattens it out. So, yeah. I don't know. We want to hear from you though. What do you do at home? Speechsciencepodcast.com. Email us speech science at or speech science podcast at gmail.com. Hashtag it up SSPod or phone calls or text 614-681-1798. Our second article, this is coming out of the disabilityscoop.com. Says the majority of states are failing to meet obligations under IDEA. Uh, it says 21 states have sat, has met the requirements or thresholds for the 2018 or 2019 school year in annual evaluations. I work in a school district and this is terrifying, but not surprising to be honest. I know you work more in the, the, the medical field. Mm -hmm. Have you ever dabbled anything in the school setting at all? Um, Only when I did one of my field placements there in, in graduate school. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I read that and I was not surprised. Um, A large portion of my friends from grad school work in the school system. So, I mean, I hear about it. Both my parents were educators. They didn't work in like the special education realm as much specifically, but like, I feel like I have an inside track on like the education world (laughs) and like, color me not surprised like at all well i know the problem here in ohio and here's the states that met the requirement first let's go through that arkansas florida georgia illinois kansas kentucky maine massachusetts minnesota missouri new hampshire new jersey north carolina north dakota oklahoma pennsylvania south dakota virginia west virginia wisconsin and wyoming i I know one of the big issues we have here in ohio is that our our ode or idea law has no teeth so if a school district breaks IDEA, if they break our workload caseload law, no one gets in trouble. There's no repercussions. So no there's repercussions. No, no need to even implement it. So here's kind of how it works here. So let's say, Leanne, you are the SLP in a middle school and you have 90 kids. And here in Ohio, you can only have 80 so you're That's the cap. Only That's my cap. 80? 80, 80. Oh, geez. You just must <laughs> not do anything during the day. No, just 30 minute sessions all day long. No. Oh. Um, with like 20 kids each like that's insanity 15 come on let's be no. real. <laughs> no 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 but okay so let's say you've got the 90 kids and you reach out to your supervisor and they say do what you can i can't do anything so leanne you're you're the good slp you're going to reach out to ode and say i'm concerned about my students my school district isn't changing anything the, the ode will write back to you and say great leanne what is your school district and what is your superintendent's name then they reach out to your superintendent, we'll call him Mr. Smith, and they'll say, Mr. Smith, Leanne Porter, one of your SLPs at XYZ Middle School, called us and said that you're not following IDEA law. They're throwing you under the bus. So would you like this waiver to get through the next year? And then could you make sure that next year she does not have 90 kids on her caseload? Oh, my god! And Mr. Smith goes, can do. And then Mr. Smith calls you into his office and goes, Leanne, let's talk about next school year. Let's talk about why you're tattling on me to my supervisors, my superiors. Do you, uh, do you want a job next year? And I think honestly, like as kiddingly as we say that, and I I feel like that's a lot of the issues behind why states are not meeting minimum requirements in IDEA. 
I'm like so glad you mentioned that because as you were reading the title, I mean, I read the article too, right, right. but as you were setting it up, I was like, oh, you want states to meet the requirements of IDA? How about you make manageable caseloads for these SLPs? Like, hello? They can't, they can't actually do their job and create meaningful change in these students' lives because <laughs> there's a million <laughs> of them. <laughs> well, so I know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking something up as we talk about it. Um, I know in Ohio, our, our maximum caseload is 80, but we're supposed to also use the workload model which means that certain students weigh more than others. So uh, a student with autism uh, counts for 1.6 students, where, ju where just, in quotes, an articulation student is one. So the idea is, is that you right. could have, right, right, but you could have 80 articulation students or 50 students with autism or emotional disability or delay, um, multiple handicap, OHI, trying to think there's a couple others that that, fit into that. Uh, we call it other health impairment here in Ohio mm. so it's kind of the kids that don't fit other categories but we oh. know that they need special education so you know it might be that kid that's got some sensory needs ADHD and a communication delay they don't mm. necessarily fit autism they don't necessarily fit multiple handicap they'll fit that OHI mm -hmm. category um, so they say that you can have 50 of those students or some mixture in between. So they try to fix it. The problem is, is school districts go, well, here's 120 kids at the high school. Good luck. Wow. See, this, this is exactly why I could never work in the school system because I am <laughs> getting, I'm breaking out in hives right now. This is too much. That's why I sit as the Ohio school rep for the Ohio Speech and Language Hearing Association to nice. help fight for, for this. Yeah. And I know this is something that we've been fighting for a while. But I mean, like, I have hope that Kathy Hoffman, she's the state superintendent out in Arizona. She's an SLP. Mm -hmm. Hopefully she can try to help get some of that stuff controlled out in Arizona. I think Arizona's got no cap. Oof. So they can have like 140 kids on their case. That's like life. abuse. <laughs> like career abuse right oh, well and i mean it's not just us though i mean like i i know that i've worked with uh special or special intervention teachers and uh or intervention specialists i don't know why i just flipped those words but intervention specialists who say that they can only have eight kids that are multiple handicap so what the the school will do is give them five students that are multiple handicap and then like six kids with autism wow so then that way they're still under the cap of 16. Oh. Right? That's so terrible. Like, you know what? I, I see what they're doing is like maximizing efficiency. Mm -hmm. yep. And like, I'm an, like obsessed with efficiency. So like, I can see that, but it is getting into the realms of like unethical behavior. And then I'm like, shut it down. Like, no. And then let's all come back to school in the fall. <laughs> Ooh, you really want to ruffle some feathers now, well, don't you? Well, and I know it's like it's a tough it's a tough discussion to have, and then this isn't the, necessarily the place for it. But you know, where my son's going to go to school, they said that they're shutting down busing for all the students, which I get. Hey, we don't want to mix, and then they're like, except for all the kids on on special education transportation, they're all still going to get bused. And my initial reaction is like, aren't those the kids that are most likely to get sick? and then seriously get ill because of this? The kids you know, with my, the, the yeah. compromised immune syndromes? So. Yeah, but you know, it's funny. Like my first thought when you said like no more busing, I'm like, 
the burden that that places on mm-hmm. parents oh yeah is unimaginable like i'm i'm let me be clear i'm not a parent but i, I can like <laughs> low-key sympathize <laughs> right well and then you even think about like let's talk about sp- like iep meetings or or whatnot we're gonna have all these people in the building together i read okay. something today where one of the potential cdc recommendations for ohio was that if a teacher gets sick they would have to quarantine for two weeks and then potentially any of the students they interact with will have to quarantine for two weeks. This is such an interesting, how, how are we not taking lessons from other countries that have already been through this? And I'm not talking about just with the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus. I'm talking about like China has, has seen respiratory pandemics in the past, Mm -hmm. in the recent past. Like when was the bird flu and SARS, like all of those examples, what did they do? Was it successful? Let's model that. Like why are we acting like we have to come up with all the answers and we can't see what's been done and adapt it? Because we're number one. (laughs) But I mean, going back to the special education, not meeting IDEA. Mm, so, yes. I, I, no, 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 no. I mean, like, I'm not surprised at all. It's, hey, the the system that we can't get people to be held accountable for anything, all of a sudden is now has uh, 39, or I'm sorry, 29 states that are not meeting the basic guidelines for free and appropriate public education. Mm-hmm. And let's continue to defund it. Right. Yes, that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Like we talk about burnout. We've talked about burnout before. We've had Angie Merced on the show to talk about burnout a couple episodes ago, like 15, if you're looking for that number. Uh, but like we talk about burnout in the schools. And if you have an SLP that's seeing 90 kids, Ooh, that stop is. Me out. <laughs> well, here's the number for you. And I'm going to do the math for everyone that's driving. Oh, no. So, so we're going to pretend you work in a school district that gives mm-hmm. out progress reports every, every eight weeks or every nine weeks to every okay. student. So let's say you have 90 students and you have to make nine progress reports. You're at 700 or at eight progress reports. You're going to have 720 reports already plus, plus the 90 for the IEPs. Nope. Plus let's say a third of those kids are on ETRs. So within one year, you're doing 840 documents just to get through one year. And we talk about why, why SLPs burn out or do groups of 25. Did you even count the daily notes that they have to record all their daily nope. data? Thank you. Let's do that. Medicaid? So 90, 90 reports a week because the daily notes and with Medicaid and there's what, 35 weeks. But Plus some of those kids you're seeing a couple times a week. Uh, well, just we're going big once a week. All you're right, doing, if, if you're seeing 90 kids once a week, that's how much you're doing. 3,990 documentations, reports on the computer, wasting your life. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to be so depressive. You guys no. do amazing. No, it's amazing 100%. I'm glad you have that reaction. And that's kind of where I come from, where I'm like, I'm not surprised 29 states have failed to meet IDEA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I My previous school district, I left, I started the year with 125 kids. Gosh. Between direct and indirect uh, therapy, it How was like you indirect therapy. So in Ohio, we have uh, we can't do indirect therapy with the student, but they're called what we call consult students. So it's a kid that let's say it's an R kid. Uh, they have reading deficits, math deficits, and then they were seeing me for R. The R, R is 
Yeah, like Arctic, but I was just saying like the letter R. Okay. And let's say they're at like 90%, or let's say a fluency kid, they're at like 90% fluent. But I would, you know, as a high school SLP, I don't like getting rid of some of my fluency kids their senior year, right, when they're doing all their interviews. Mm -hmm. But I don't need to see them every week. So I would go to a consult model where if they need to come see me, I'm still on their caseload. I can still give input to help them for oral presentations, but they don't necessarily need to do direct therapy 30 minutes a week. Okay. Well, that's, that makes so much more sense. Yeah. It's like a continuation of care. So it's like that way you're not dropping the senior who's had speech and language therapy every year of his life. And the only time he gets nervous is in a new situation. I'm thinking of this one kid. He only came to see me every time he had a job interview. Mm -hmm. And he's like, Mr. Hot, I need an idea. Because every time I say, oh, I get really sweaty. And I'm like, well, let's work on that. So. Nice. Whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. What's your state doing? Hit us up. Let us know. SpeechSciencePodcast.com. Email SpeechSciencePodcast at gmail.com. Hashtag it up. SSPod. Or find us on the Discords. Discord.SpeechSciencePodcast.com. Dot com or the phone call 614-681-1798. When we come back from the break, we are going to talk about the important topics of how to counsel with your clients and their families. You're listening to Speech Science. Hi, I'm Mayling Chan. And I'm Martin Sibley. And we are the hosts of the Exceptional Leaders Podcast, where we spotlight high-profile topics and amazing people who are changing the worldview on disability. Even though we are oceans apart, we are bringing people from all over the world together to discuss inclusion, advocacy, accessibility, and real-life journeys. So listen to the Exceptional Leaders Podcast to hear the voices and stories from amazing changemakers and be inspired to make a real difference in the world. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Put a number on that. A how-to for using new normative values for perceptual ratings of dysarthric speech in children. This is a review of an article entitled Age Norms for Auditory Perceptual Neurophonetic Parameters, a Prerequisite for the Assessment of Childhood Dysarthria from the Journal of Speech, Language, and Hearing Research. When we evaluate dysarthria, we know we need to assess the respiratory, laryngeal, and supralaryngeal subsystems, and we know that a good communication assessment uses a combination of standardized measures, perceptual ratings, acoustic and aerodynamic data, and dynamic assessment. But there are actually very few standardized or norm-referenced measures for evaluating children with dysarthria. For example, 50% of children with cerebral palsy so our perceptual rating plays an even more important role. A downside of relying on perceptual ratings is that a perceptual rating alone doesn't usually qualify a child for speech services or provide a normative benchmark. 
other than normal abnormal. But the authors of this study have created age-specific norms and cutoff scores for perceptual ratings that can be used in dysarthria assessments of school-aged children. Here's how to use them. Step 1. Select speech samples for your perceptual ratings. The authors suggest using a speech task that allows for elicitation of 1. Sentence repetition and 2. Spontaneous speech production. Specific speech stimuli weren't outlined in the study, but the authors used a retelling of a well-known German storybook. The important thing is to make sure your samples have a variety of syllables in sentences, so respiration can be evaluated in shorter and longer phrases, have diversity in the place, manner, and voicing of phonemes, and require the child to ask and answer questions so prosodic modulation and intonation patterns can be assessed. Step 2. Rate the child's speech samples. Clinicians should rate the nine areas below for each speech sample using an equal appearing rating scale from zero to four, with zero equaling very severe and four equaling no disorder. The areas rated include one, respiration, two, voice level loudness, three, voice quality, four, voice stability, five, articulation, six, resonance, seven, speech articulation rate, eight, fluency, 9. Prosody. If that seems like a lot of areas to rate, don't worry. We developed a handy downloadable spreadsheet for you, linked to in the review online. Step 3. Compare your ratings to normative values. You can download the supplemental material from the article for your comparisons. It has the complete table with normative values for each perceptual area for children between 3 years 0 months and 9 years 11 months of age. You'll want to use this chart by taking your average perceptual rating for each area and comparing it to the 2.5% cutoff value established by the researchers. This will determine if the child is below normative expectations for their age. But wait, you can also use this data for progress monitoring to track progress and improvements in perceptual ratings. The distance to the norm can be calculated using a formula that we've listed on the website. I know, I know, we all love math, but not to fear. You can use this handy web-based calculator or the downloadable spreadsheet we created to do all the work for you. Now go forth and conquer your childhood dysarthria assessments with confidence. To learn more about this paper and other new research, check out our reviews on theinformedslp.com. There's links to both the original article and the review in the show notes. The Informed SLP makes it easy for you to stay up to date on all of the clinically relevant research across the lifespan that comes out every month. Know what works to do what works. Welcome back to Speech Science, episode number 119. I'm Matt Hott, joined this week by Leanne Porter. Uh, before that was the informed SLPs uh, look at dysarthria and how to use perceptual ratings on dysarthic speech in children. Uh, always check out their stuff over at theinformedslp.com. So Leanne, I have a secret to say. All Ooh. last week, Michelle, Michael, and I all thought the episode was 117. Nice. <laughs> it was 118. <laughs> So anyone that was listening was super confused because the number said 118, but they said 117. That's, so. That sounds like 
I, th- I feel like I fit right in. Like I'm I am, so happy here. I'm with my people. I am orientated and I know where I'm at. That is what I try to say. But let's talk about you for a second. You run the Speech Uncensored podcast. What is that? Where can people can find it and why? Okay, so the Speech Uncensored podcast was created um, to bring resources and information to SLPs working in the medical field. Um, I learned so much through two amazing podcasts about dysphagia, like the Swallow Your Pride and Down the Hatch podcast. But I, I wasn't finding any other podcasts that talked on other areas of our field, like cognition. Okay, there actually are some really great aphasia mm-hmm. podcasts out there as well, like aphasia access and I feel like there's another one. Oh, there's one by ANCDS, like the American Academy of Nerd. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Orders. Mm-hmm. They have a podcast. Um, maybe about once or twice a month they have episodes. So it's it's a little bit here or there. There really wasn't any other podcast for um, med SLPs working with adults that really covered the whole gamut of what we're responsible for knowing and implementing. So um, I wanted to learn more about those to be a better SLP. So I just decided to jump in and try it out. So each episode, I have a guest on who um, kind of teaches me and shares information about all those different areas in our field. And I see Uh, that you're on season three. Is that right? Yes. Which is misleading Uh (laughs) because I'm only in, like, I started in 2019. And so part of that was season one. When I joined um, forces, if you will, with speechtherapypd.com to offer CEU content, I made that, the initiation of that relationship become season two. So 2019 cool. finished with season two, and then 2020 started with season three. Very cool. We inadvertently found out we were doing seasons on our show. Oh, yeah? But you're still, like, counting every episode. And the reason is, as we found out we were doing, like, 30 episodes a year and then taking large breaks at the end of each season, at the end of each year. Uh-huh. So I was like, we'll just make those seasons. So we backed into the seasons by accident. But it sounds like you started doing seasons like for a purpose. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted, I started the podcast wanting the season to thinking in my mind, each season would represent a year. And then I was like surprised by this offer to partner for the CEUs. So I was like, well, I, I want some kind of definition, some kind of transition. So let's call it a second season. So then that kind of totally blew my idea of separating <laughs> the years by the seasons right out of the water. So yeah, like I mentioned, season three, it's misleading. It's only the second year of the podcast. Well, it's still pretty cool. And we are glad that you're on our show. And we'll have the link to your show down in our speech notes. And I've said before, I'm stealing a line from Kevin Smith, who evidently might have stole it from somebody else. But rising tides raise all boats. So welcome to the world of speech therapy podcasting, because it's crazy. Well, thank you so much. I think you know this in your second year that you're like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? (laughs) It's wild. But I totally appreciate that, that welcome and camaraderie. It's awesome. And I totally agree with you. Like I'm not here to try to do my own thing. I'm here to learn from other SLPs and to shine the spotlight on other SLPs. You know, this podcast is not about me. I I think I do okay, but like, I don't think I need to stand around telling other people how to do their job. No, right. I, I want to know what resources are out there and how to use them. And so That's I want to share that with people. That is awesome. So we will have that link below. Our last article today was coming from the... 
American Journal of Speech Language Pathology, talking about the importance of teaching counseling to grad students and getting mm -hmm. beyond just mm -hmm. informational counseling. I had no idea what informational counseling was until this article. I really appreciate that, that they differentiated the two that there are, well, there are probably more than the two discussed mm -hmm. in this article, but they made the clear distinction between what is informational counseling, which in my interpretation means just providing education, like, oh, you're experiencing aphasia. What is aphasia? Mm -hmm. Can, you know, X, Y, Z. And then personal adjustment counseling, and that we are incredibly underprepared to provide that out in our clinical practice. And for sure, we are, we are well aware of it. Well, so. I've always thought I was like, oh, I'm like, I'm a great give patient education, you know, write that up in your, your soap note at the end of the day, patient and caregiver educated on dysphagia strategies and ways to generalize into everyday parts of the world. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm realizing all I'm doing is the information counseling. Yeah. I'm explaining why the muscles don't work. I'm mm -hmm. explaining why your brain has trouble figuring out what day is it, what day is it, or where you put your car keys because you don't care. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not doing any of this personal adjustment counseling. And I feel like I almost want to go back to everything I've done the last 10 years and just listen to my patients. Right. Yeah. I had been on a path of, of figuring out, learning how to do this. And so when I was reading this article, I was like, oh, yes, I need this. This is so good. This is really highlighting a lot of things, like filling in some gaps. But as I was reading it, I was like, okay, what is personal adjustment counseling? I don't understand what those three words in that order mean. <laughs> um, and if I'm understanding the article, it's, it's doing grief work. It's mm -hmm. taking into account the emotional impact of the event that has landed the patient in your therapy room or on your caseload, mm -hmm. um, recognizing that. It's about being a listener. It's about empowering them by valuing them as a human being and, and recognizing what they're going through is hard. Um, yeah, it was really, really good. And actually, I started having these thoughts where I was like, this sounds a lot like motivational interviewing. Oh, yeah. I never thought of that. Yeah, I'm really good at drawing connections but not so great at like explaining more about them. <laughs> well, and, and it's funny, a couple weeks ago, we had a question from a listener that said, what would be one thing that you wish more grad schools taught? And my thought was we need to do more improv and theater work for our clinicians because I, I come from a theater background. My background's originally in TV, radio, minor in theater, minor in German, or almost minor in German. And I use improv training all the time. When a patient or a client asks or a caregiver asks me a question and I need to stall, but I need to stall like, I, like I'm a trained adult and not grasping at straws and trying to figure out what they've asked me to talking to a principal to, you know, defending why I'm doing therapy a certain way in an IEP meeting. It's all because of improv training where you say yes and I'm going to listen to what you say. And the more I read about this, the more I was thinking about how that's the same principle that we need to attach when we are looking at grief counseling, as you put it, mm -hmm. because I never thought about it, but it is a grief counseling because our patients are going through this moment where they are riding high as a kite. They are playing golf. They are hanging out with their grandkids, going out with their husbands, and then they have a stroke. 
-hmm. Then they have a major car crash and hit their head. Then it's the football player with a concussion. I mean, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden their world flips upside down. And now there comes the SLP in her scrubs or in his, his scrubs says, Hey, you're now on puree for the rest of your life. Good luck. You can't eat steak because it'll kill you. Yeah. Thumbs up. I'm out the door. I got somewhere to be like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Or it's like the patient starts talking about how terrible they feel because this is what their outlook looks like. And they're really struggling with that. And we're like, well, you know what you could do about that? You could really do these exercises and really work on improving your swallow. That's what's going to help you. Mm -hmm. And what the article pointed out was that, um, they've they've experienced a loss and it's a loss that needs to be mourned and when you think you're helping by um reassuring them or trying to offer solutions you're invalidating their feelings or instead we just need to be quiet and to listen and to be like oh i put a square around it to say things like this must be very hard for you and there's a lot of different ways you can say that to have a lot of different impacts, right? Like mm-hmm. all your interactions need to be coming from a place of like authenticity and genuine interest in them as a human being. And, you know, you could say, oh, that must be very hard for you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's just, that's lip service. That's right. almost exactly. condescending. But if, and people, people know if it's coming from a place <laughs> of realness, right? So I, I don't like, I, okay, so to plug my own podcast. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> I had this really insightful conversation with Dr. Amanda Stead from Pacific University. And the conversation was on like end of life care and what is the role of the SLP. And that was where I first started learning these tools about having difficult conversations, uh, being comfortable in uncomfortable settings. And it was really empowering and it really ties into you know what is vulnerability it's a strength not a weakness you know we could like go way off track and start talking about Brene Brown Mm -hmm. (laughs) well and I think you're right though I mean like it is such a a topic that we don't want to address as therapists because I think ultimately deep down the reason we became therapists is one we like people we care about people but we want to fix things Mm -hmm. and in therapy realm you know, we're trained on how to fix the letter mm-hmm. L. We're, mm-hmm. we're fixing the S letter. We are fixing communication needs. So that fixing could be a communication device. It could be sign language. It could be verbal output. It doesn't matter. We're quote unquote fixing it. And I think it becomes very awkward for us that when we're, we're handling a patient that is 98 years old, that is 75 years old or 50 years old, that is terminal. I, I think you're right. I think we don't want to have that real conversation or that deep conversation about the fears or the the worries that they they have. Yeah, I was really scared to to broach those types of conversations and to have them because I was scared of saying something inappropriate, mm-hmm. of doing more harm than good. And I think one of my takeaways from my my discussion with Amanda Stead was that. You don't really need to say anything. You just need to listen and be mm-hmm. authentic and like allow that. them the space to express their feelings appropriately. Like if you can create a safe space, you're doing it right. And and we're not going to fix their feelings. We're not going to fix how they feel about what happened to them. But we can acknowledge it and validate it 
and, and empower them. So I had this patient years ago that I gave a test to. And uh, it was actually the older version of the cognitive linguistic quick test before they did the new, man, whatever they fixed on it. The plus. Yeah, yeah the plus. <laughs> and so you know how it says this is what it is for ages like 70 to 89 or whatever it was. And this patient was like 95 years old. So, you know, and it, you've, you were trying to broach like what is expected of your age and what is not expected of your age. And this person was like right on the, like on the borderline of what they could or could not do for the 70 to 89 year old. So I'm like trying to say, I'm like, you know, this is where you're strong. This is where you're weak. And then they were like, so I'm good for 89, but since I'm 95, no one cares about me. And I was like, huh. And then she just, or they just started laughing. Uh -huh. And they're like, it's okay. I'm 95. Let's talk about what I can do. And it was just that moment where you go, okay, cool. This isn't that, that taboo topic that we shouldn't be addressing with, with them at that moment. But mm -hmm. yeah, I need to get myself out of this informational counseling, this idea that I'm just, I'm helping them by being the human encyclopedia. That's what I need to fix. Right. Something else really meaningful that they talked about in there is that um, when a client's emotions are high, then they're not going to retain the content we provide. Mm -hmm. So if we don't address that emotional aspect of it, we could do the world's best informational counseling. They're not, they're not taking it. It's not working. In well, fact, like I had to discharge a patient because we weren't really? able to progress through their, their emotional, they, they needed way more of that personal adjustment counseling than I was capable of providing. Like they needed a psychologist, like a neuropsychologist to work with them in therapy on this thing. Um, Cause we weren't progressing. We were not progressing in our therapy. And so. Well, and I kind of wonder, so I do home care. And so we work on 60 day cert periods and I often wonder, you know, is it a waste of time sometimes when they get home? Because we are not, a, we don't, we're not trained or sometimes not, willing to look at how to handle that emotional side like you said talking to a, a, a psych like we get them for 60 days when they come home if the first 35 days is them coming to terms with their new normal and and that's what bugs me i think sometimes with occupational and physical therapy is that they go okay here's the railing on your stairs we uh we tore out your old stairs and we built these god-awful metal ramp for your wheelchair <laughs> And we crushed all your flowers and we've also installed this grab bar into your beautiful shower. So now it looks like a hospital room. And mm -hmm. now we put a medical bed in your uh, living room. Mm -hmm. See you later. And then peace. we're right. Peace. And then we're left as the speech therapist going, okay, well, let's handle all the emotional stuff of your house being torn apart. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about why you don't remember your son's name. Mm -hmm. Like it, mm -hmm. it that's the part that bugs me with OTPT because they, it almost feels like they dump on us in the speech therapy realm. Wow. And, and I don't know if you see that in the hospital setting because I know in the home care setting, we're kind of by ourselves on little islands, but I don't know if you see the same thing in, in the hospital setting or. I haven't. And I'll okay. just speak to like the, the outpatient setting. Is and that I work with some great OTPTs in case any of them are listening. <laughs> this is previous places that I've worked at. Right. <laughs> until they come, I like, like them. Yeah. I like Ryan and Kara. And all <laughs> we that need to talk. <laughs> An outpatient, when we share a patient, they're seeing all three disciplines or me and OT or just me and PT, you know, whoever it is, whenever I'm working with a patient who's seen other providers, like I go and I talk to them and I, 
I want to know a couple things. Are we seeing the same things? Do we have the same kind of concerns? Um, What are they doing in their therapy that I can support them in and communicating with their patient? Um, Things like that. So I think it's much more communicative and supportive because we're all interested in this patient's maximal gains. Like they came to us for a very specific purpose. Like we are working diligently for them to meet that goal. True. So we meet up, we collaborate, we carve out time when we are not given the time to do this because <laughs> it is back-to-back appointments, <laughs> my friend. That's the one thing I do miss about working in an outpatient setting is the seeing a patient five days a week. I felt like we made more growth that way. So, or an inpatient facility, I should say. Yeah. Is it, um, is home health only like once a week? Are you able to see them any more frequent? Yeah. So I kind of set my own, my own setting or my own frequency with the patients, but it, you know, it, you're, they're back at home. So they've got family coming in. They want to do their own thing. They want to sit and look at their garden. Like all of a sudden you go from you're on my schedule to I'm on your schedule. And I may say, I need to see you three to four times a week. And they go, well, PT's <laughs> coming on Mondays and Wednesdays. OT's coming Tuesdays and Thursdays. And nursing is coming Mondays and Fridays. So can you come Wednesdays at 8 a.m. and Thursdays at 4? I love that. Right. And you, you want to make it work for them because they're at their home. So it, it's hard because you do want to see them five days a week. But sometimes you can't. Like I have these fantasies of becoming a home health therapist and like rocking out the functional therapy. Like I would be in their home. I could see, I could ask them to like do a thing and then see where the breakdowns are and be like, let's problem solve. Let's make solutions and all these things. Like, I think that would be so awesome because I actually have a patient and, and his spouse be like, can we take you home with us? Because that's what I ask them. I'm like, where are you having difficulties in your home life? That's mm-hmm. what I want to work on in therapy. I don't want to do a worksheet with you. Like I'll send a worksheet home if you want homework, right. but I want you to see measurable improvement when you're outside of this therapy room. What does that look like? Let's target things you care about. That is the thing that I do like about home health care is that I am coming into their home. So mm-hmm. if, you know, sometimes on the day I can tell that they're just super, they're just done for the day when I get there. So Mm -hmm. what we're going to do is we're going to play card games and they're going to hear my 50 questions that I'm asking them to get their brain sparking and they don't know better. And Mm -hmm. then the other day it was one of my patients. Part of our therapy was getting that patient to reprogram their television remote. Nice. See, that is so important. Right. And they're like, what are we doing? What are we doing therapy? And I'm like, Oh, we are. Trust me. This is like a five step issue that we're breaking down into single steps while I'm reading the directions off the internet. Like we're doing this, but I, I was working a day in inpatient rehab. So these are people who are staying in the hospital. They still need nursing and doctor Mm -hmm. oversight, and they're getting a minimum of three hours of therapy a day. And this particular patient I was going in to see had a cancer that metastasized and they'd been working through this cancer for the past seven years. Okay. So they were picked up for therapy, for speech therapy, into their inpatient rehab stay. Like they didn't need to see us. Something happened and PT and OT were concerned about their cognition. So they were put on our caseload. So I go in to see them on a Saturday because they had refused treatment earlier in the week and they needed to make up the time. So um, 
I had read previous notes. I was getting up to date on this patient, what the goals were, and noticing that they were feeling very low. They were refusing therapy for high levels of pain that they weren't experiencing before. Mm-hmm. So when I go in there, I'm I'm already st- I'm starting off by being like rapport building has to be number one. I can't right, go in right. and be like, hey, you ready to get to work? Let's do some work. Like, so I just started off by saying, hey tell me a little bit about yourself. And she launched into this whole description of the past seven years of her life, giving me like detailed information of the course of her cancer, the different trials she'd been through, the different treatment courses. And her goals were for attention and memory. There you go. And I was like, oh, this was great. So then like she's, she, I can see that she's like lighting up. She's like mm-hmm. enjoying because I'm sitting back. I am not interrupting her. I'm not trying to guide the conversation. I'm, I'm listening. And she is just, she keeps going. And I'm, and she was like, Oh, is that what you were asking? And I was like, yes. Also, what about you as a person? Right. right. <laughs> so she's like, Oh, okay. So she starts telling me about her as a person and I'm learning all these things about her. We start talking about religion. We start talking about politics. That's awesome. I mean, she's having, we had a 60 minute conversation that she definitely dominated because it was my goal to sit in the background where she was unable to, according to previous reports, sustain attention for more than five minutes. Right. And she is just like going to town. She is alert. She is oriented. (laughs) I'm like, we would have wasted 60 minutes by me Mm -hmm. putting down a worksheet in front of her and being like, do this crossword. And I think that's that's important. And, and I think you're right. I think we, I don't know if you were alluding to it or not, but I feel like a lot of times we come in with our own preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we go, this is what we're doing. And it's like, patient can't sustain attention for 45 seconds. And it's like, well, your therapy was boring. It was terrible. Or, or self-centered or <laughs> didn't match them at all or, or anything. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know. So we could talk about this for hours. We want to hear from you at home, speechsciencepodcast.com, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com, hashtag it up, SSPod. That's where you'll find us on the Instagrams, the Twitters, the Facebooks. I don't know if we're on Snapchats or, or TikToks. I was on TikTok. Until, were you? Uh, so well, great. I didn't make scared. TikTok. I, I just read, I just watched TikToks all the time. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. And then now I had to delete it because evidently it may not be the best. So I don't know. Oh, I've heard things. Yeah, evidently it was for real, like copying everything in your clipboard from your phone, <gasps> sending it to some third party. So, oh, whatever. Much. If you're using that or you want to talk about your version of informational versus, what was the other type of counseling? Oh. Yes, uh, personal adjustment counseling. Personal adjustment counseling. You can also text us or phone call 614-681-1798. This part of the show, we always do the ASHA spotlight. It's super easy to blame ASHA for stuff that they're doing wrong, but we like to say something that they are doing right. And this week we are talking about the ASHA Connect. It is going entirely online. For real, I was actually going to try to go to ASHA Connect this year, and then COVID happened, so now I have to do it online. Uh, It runs from July 8th, which is today when we're recording it, which will be six days ago when you hear it for the first time next Tuesday. We are coming to you from the past, but it runs until July 20th. Uh, It is the Schools Connect, the Healthcare Connect, and the Private Practice Connect. They used to be three different entities, and now they're doing it as one big old 
uh, online convention. So that is the Asha shoutout or spotlight, I should say. Yay, Asha. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's super easy, but no, I mean, I've gone to, I've never done the Asha Connects or the summer stuff. And I've been to two Asha conventions. Have you been to any? Yes, I've been to two Asha conventions as well because that's the only conventions I thought Asha did. <laughs> um, I Before I started this podcast, I had little to no understanding of what Asha did besides collect dues, give me my C's, make it so I could practice and have a yearly conference. So I've learned through the guests that I interview um, about things like the Asha Connect Conference, which was recommended as a great place to meet um, the presenters and people mm -hmm. who've been reading their research, which is something I do sporadically. Like, I'm not gonna lie. I don't sit at home every day reading research, like, no. So on my counselor, or not my counselor, on my calendar at the school district, I have a section where I say that I'm reading research. And <gasps> You actually just carve out time for that? That's cute. <laughs> uh, I do. And unfortunately, most of the time it turns into Medicaid billing or me just staring into the abyss, drinking my coffee, wondering where my life has gone wrong. No, but like, preach, preach. but no, it used to be. And like, I'll try to do some research reading. And unfortunately, it's turned into I'll read the digest from the informed SLP and go, OK, I've mm -hmm. done my research today. But sure. no, I, I like that idea of trying to meet uh, your, the people that are doing the research. And I have a personal goal this year to get an ACE award. Nice. Do you know what that is? I mean, yeah, it's for you overachievers. Like seven, seven continuing education units or 70 hours within a 36 month period. Yeah. I've, I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to do it. I'm like too cheap to pay for the ASHA registry, which is ironic because uh, I was like, oh, I'm going to do it this year. It's like 25 year. bucks, man. I know. Listen, I have a weird concept of frugality. Um, okay. It's not like extreme. It's like, I will throw down for some quality stuff. I was just like, I'm a grown woman. I can track my own CEUs. I don't need to pay you to do it. Also, because of the, a lot of the stuff that I had available to me was not going through ASHA. So it wasn't like Fair it would enough. even work. Like, See, I'm a grown man who knows that I can't track my own <laughs> CEU hours. So I will pay them $25. <laughs> I have toys hanging out over my right shoulder over here. I have a seven, a three-year-old, and a baby in September. I will pay somebody $55 a year <laughs> if they can keep me out of trouble with the ASHA, the ASHA police. But on the positive, <laughs> the ASHA Connect is coming up this past week and till the, till the 20th. So that is something kind of cool. All right, so we are gonna wrap up the show the same way we always do. Let's look ahead for the next week, Leanne. This is the part where we look at what we are doing not therapy related. So Ooh. I will lead off. I'll give you half a moment to think about it. Uh, this next week, my goal is to get my son, my oldest son back out onto the golf course. My seven-year-old, he really likes it. Uh, and also a little bit behind the show curtain. Uh, we had to take a break in the middle of recording this because we found a mouse in my basement. So I guess that is what I'll be doing this next week is trying to figure out how to get a mouse out of my house. <laughs> and figuring out why it. my two cats in my house have not done their jobs. So Blackers. that's what I'm doing this week. Leanne, what are you doing this week? Um, well, this week, if it's not gonna ruffle any people's feathers regarding the pandemic, my husband uh -oh. and I are gonna go camping in a national park. Where's that? We'll be wearing our masks. We're driving over to Colorado and we're gonna hit up three of their national parks. Ooh. 
Yeah, we're on a mission to see all of them. We want to visit all the national parks. They are ridiculously gorgeous treasures mm -hmm. of the United States. Um, that's where I want all my tax money to go, quite frankly. <laughs> you are Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, well, uh, he was kind of a hunter. He probably started the national parks to like have a hunting ground. He did. That's legit. He was like, let's keep this beauty. So when it wanders off the national park, I can mount it over my living room. Yeah. I like always want to know people's uh, like real reason, their undercurrent. That's fair. I will say this. The only national park that I think I've been to is Red River. I'm sorry. It's called the Daniel Boone National Forest located in the Red River Gorge in Kentucky. Well, cute. If you're in Kentucky, Mammoth Cave is there. You can oh, see like the world's oh, largest. Yeah. I've been there then. That. I've been there. Cave so I've done there that. There you go. But no, Red River Gorge is like Mammoth Cave, except you're above ground. <laughs> so it's wonderful. Um, Mammoth Cave would be beautiful to go to in the middle of summer because it'd probably be like 60 degrees underground. It would that be like, true. oh. So when do you guys head out that way? When? Mm -hmm. This weekend. Ooh, that'll be nice. So wonderful. Yeah, yeah excited. Awesome. All right, so our... Intro, I almost forgot what I was going to do here at the end. Our intro music was Please Listen Carefully by Jazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share alike license. Our bump music is County Fair Rock, copyrighted John Deku. Find all his music at soundcloud.com slash music. Our informed SLP and our closing music was At the Count by Broke for Free and The Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod. They're both licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. In the immortal words of Janice Wright, always be a willow. In pressure or under pressure, the mighty oak looks strong, but it will crack. The willow will bend and return to form. For the missing willows, Michael McLeod, Michelle Wintering, and the current wonderful host of the Speech Uncensored podcast, Leanne Porter. I'm Matt Hot. Until next week, so long, everybody. Bye. Sweet. That was fun. What? This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.